0: This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas... They are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom, it has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two if you want to see this as i said it's called the norris n-o-r-r-i-s sneaker go to 511 tactical and that discount code that i was talking about is shield 15 s-h-i-e-l-d one five that will be applicable for all of your purchases the only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher so if they're offering a 20 percent or 25 percent off obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think are amazing, um, go to 5.11 Tactical, put in Shield 15 and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 251 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week I am so excited to bring to you Tom Hewitt. Now, Tom is a fellow Brit who moved to South Africa, and when he was there, realized they had a real problem with homelessness, specifically with children. So as an avid surfer, he realized that there were ways they could apply sports, including surfing, to these kids to give them a positive outlet and also a means to then provide counseling and therapy as well. So an extremely powerful interview. The links to both the charities that we talk about, Surfers Not Street Children and his recent one, Girls Surf 2, uh, will be on the show notes for this episode. So if you go to jamesgearing.com, J-A-M-E-S-G-E-E-R-I-N-G dot com, click on podcast, find this episode and all the links will be there on the show notes. So before we go to the interview, please take a moment to go to your podcast app, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and then leave a rating. So the more five-star ratings we get, the more visible we are to people that are looking for a podcast just like this. And then on top of that, share these incredible men and women stories. So whether it's word of mouth, email, social media, whatever means you can think of, they have given an hour, two hours of their time. Please use your outlets to share these stories because I know there are men and women all over the planet that need to hear some of these great people. So with that being said, I introduce to you Tom Hewitt. Enjoy. So, Tom, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: So, geographically, where are we finding you on planet Earth today?
1: (laughs) Today, I'm in a a little village in Devon, in England, actually. Uh, I'm in a place called Croyd, which is a a village that's known for surfing, believe it or not.
0: Absolutely. I I know, actually. My my dad lives in Cornwall, and I'm from Bath originally, so I'm familiar with that Ah. area. (laughs) All right. So I'd love to start at the beginning. So where where were you actually born and what was your family unit like? What did your parents do and how many siblings?
1: Yeah, I was born in the UK. Uh, I'm British. And uh, I was born to uh, parents and have three, uh, two brothers and one sister.
0: Beautiful. And what did your mom and dad do? Uh,
1: my father is a musician and they're both still alive and uh, also a bit of a uh campaigner around social issues as well
0: awesome okay and then what about your mother uh she worked alongside
1: my father but has done various other jobs as well
0: brilliant okay so then when you were young were you uh, an athlete yourself did you play football or any other sports
1: when i was really young um i didn't live by the coast until i was 11 or 12 and i actually uh played soccer and uh cricket and you know, the average sports that you would play or the usual sports you'd play in the UK. And, um, and it was only later when I got into skating, skateboarding and surfing that, uh, that everything changed.
0: Right. And where, whereabouts in England did you grow up?
1: Um, I moved around, but I was in uh, um, my high school years were in a place called Guildford in Surrey.
0: Okay, so yeah, that does, geographically it doesn't um, sound like the place you'd instantly be uh, introduced to skateboarding or surfing. So how did you first find those?
1: Funnily enough, on a, a trip to the US when I was about 12, um, I started surfing and, um, and skateboarding. I'd been skateboarding a little bit um, before that. And uh, there was a huge, um, in, in those days, there was a, there was a big skate, movement with, uh, guys like, um, Tony Hawk and the Bones Brigade, and Powell and Peralta and all these huge skaters in the, um, in the eighties. And I was very much influenced when I went to the U S by this and kind of brought that whole vibe back with me. And, um, although I lived in, in Surrey, I was only actually 45 minutes from a beach. The only downer was that the beach was flat all summer. And only had surf in the midst of an English winter, so I became quite a, uh, I started surfing right away and would would kind of hitch rides to the beach. It was forty five minutes away, and um, yeah, I did everything I could to get to the beach. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a bit of a struggle to be a surfer. That's for
0: sure. Right. Well, speaking of that, I know Kelly Slater um, surfed here where I am in Cocoa Beach in that area. Um, And I I know that that area isn't known for incredible surf. So is there something about surfing in less than perfect conditions that makes people better surfers?
1: I don't know. I think, um, you know, being a good surfer, there's a number of things that come together to make that. And um, certainly I think if you have not grown up um, next to an incredible beach, you're hungry for what you see other people uh, the waves other people are riding and places in the world. I mean, you know, I was a, a kid in the UK who would just been so influenced by the international surfing community that if you'd walked in, into my um, bedroom in my teens, it was all, you know, Hawaiian waves and, and international surfers. Nobody in our area, at that time, there was very few people that surfed in the UK. <laughs> Nobody knew who these people were. There was a little oasis. in the. You know, it is incredible that Kelly um, comes from... Uh, from, from Florida, I mean, it's you know, given how many good waves there are around the world and how many surfers come from some of the best places in the world for
0: surfing. Yeah, and he's amazing with his longevity. It still absolutely blows me away how he's able to stay at the top so many years.
1: Yeah, Kelly's a good supporter of our work, and uh, and I find him in- inspiring. He, I, I'm exactly six months older than him, so, you know, when you see him still competing at the level he's competing, it is just incredible. Um, he's a very focused guy obviously very competitive um but um but absolutely incredible and, and yeah inspiring
0: brilliant now you you mentioned about going to america so so what took you to america and then what as an english boy made you first go i'm gonna try surfing
1: well it's funny actually i had a a friend who was uh from the states who came over and did a year in the school i was at and we just became best buddies and um Uh, i yeah i went to visit him and you know saved up money and got a bit of help from my, my folks and uh and you know when i was there he was from nowhere near the beach by the way but we actually went on a on a vacation from where he was to the beach and uh and and that's where i started surfing
0: beautiful so then once you got back and you were in Surrey, um did you just surf in britain or did you start to then yearn to be in you know australia or america and start traveling there to surf as well
1: I didn't have access to surfing uh, globally at that stage because I was still young. And I surfed, um, I, used to, I was like this little grommet that used to literally uh, try and, you know, black rides to the beach every weekend. Um, so I mean, by the time I was about 15, um, it got to the stage where my parents were okay with me leaving straight after school on a Friday and then being dropped back on a Monday morning. Uh, so I'd stay at the beach on weekends and, and come back. So man, I, I was hustling to get waves.
0: <laughs> All right well then from from another perspective, then, what about career wise when you were at school, what did you dream of being when you left school?
1: Well, one thing's for sure, I had absolutely no idea that I would be doing anything similar to the work that I'm doing now, um, and I don't know I was one of those kids that didn't really know what they wanted to do. I, I was always very uh you know obsessed by the things that I got into, so when I w- was into skateboarding, I was so into it, when I was into surfing, I was so into it, um, but I didn't really have. In those days, there wasn't fantastic, or at least where I was, wasn't fantastic career advice. So I was kind of uh, cruising. I didn't do particularly well at school, funnily enough. Um, I, I, I didn't get into university after school. In fact, I went back and, uh, and did university later, um, actually in the U.S. Um, but, um, but, yeah, so I kind of cruised through school, and one of my reports um, was actually read out at my wedding, and, and it said, um, you know, if Tom – uh, had as much enthusiasm for his schoolwork than he do, as he does for riding up walls on his skateboard. He may have made a good student.
0: <laughs> you gotta love the uh, the positivity in some of the British schools. I was one of the most memorable things I ever t- was told by a teacher was, "You'll never amount to shit," which was really inspiring. <laughs> so, thank you, Mister Blizzard. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, all right, so then. Obviously, we're going to talk about the incredible work that you're doing um, in Africa. So alongside all of that, you said your dad was, was into social issues. Were you raised in that kind of ca- compassion, com- kindness kind of arena in the family home?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, names like um, Nelson Mandela, for example, um, were names that we grew up hearing about. And my father had had some involvement in the anti-apartheid movement. Um, and had been to South Africa and um, you know, had uh, had friends in South Africa, um, had done stuff with Desmond Tutu, for example. Um, so I was quite familiar. And in fact, the first time I ever went to South Africa, when I was 18, was with my father um, on an anti-apartheid, um, so fact-finding trip. Um, so it was, it was quite an interesting way to see the country for the first
0: time. Brilliant. Well, I want to talk about that because I was, you know, I think you and I were very lucky growing up in England. Um, the kids TV, I think, is phenomenal. I don't know if if, if you have any comparison with, with the U.S. or Africa, but the the Blue Peter, John Craven's Newsround, all these these shows that educated us about the world. And there was always fundraisers. Um, you know, I think we got a, a decent kind of story told about some of the issues in South Africa specifically but for people listening, can you kind of just paint us a picture of, of apartheid, how it started, and obviously ultimately how it ended?
1: Yeah, I mean the apartheid system came into play in 1948, and basically it built on history of colonialism, uh, which was uh, was was a, a racist oppression essentially, uh, but for the resources of the the land, and it, that was very formalised in 1948 under a system called apartheid, which. Actually, means separate development. Um, of course, it wasn't separate and equal development. Uh, it was um, a very slanted development where the white minority basically um, took the profits of the of the country, and the the black majority was was subservient um, to to the whites. And so, this system, you know, unbelievably, um, only uh, fell in 1994 when South Africa had its first free
0: and fair elections. Okay. And then, so I know that there is Dutch influence in, in the history and there's obviously British influence, which, uh, nation or nations were behind putting that in, in the first place? Well,
1: the, um, yeah, the, the, the colonial history in South Africa is, is British and also, uh, a fusion of Dutch, French and German, which is called Afrikaans. And, um, so, you know, um, Way back as uh, I think it was 1652, Jan van Riebeek, um came to Cape Town. So I mean, there's, there's hundreds of years of of, um, of colonialism in South Africa. But yeah, I mean, those those nations were the ones that were in particularly in South Africa. And of course, it's different if you look at Mozambique, or which was Portuguese, or um, or Namibia, which was German, and so on and so forth.
0: All right. So then, again, just to further paint the picture. You have this segregation, you know, and and I think we see it in, in many places. We I live in a country where there was segregation with the Native Americans when our forefathers first came here. Um, what were some of the the negative things that that started to manifest with that regime put in place?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, as I said, it was very slanted towards uh, the white minority, basically getting the profits from from the country, and so. Um, in order to ensure that the black majority um, basically worked for this, um, it became very oppressive. I mean, it was, it was not only unfair, but became oppressive and violent. And as um, the struggle against apartheid um, developed, the regime got tougher and tougher. And there were some extremely violent years. Um, the, the regime was brutal, actually, um, to black people in South Africa. So it's a it's not a it's a very painful history um, of oppression of of racial oppression uh, in South Africa.
0: Yeah, and I want ironically, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. I went as an early teen, and I've always been tiny, and so I I was probably thirteen, looked more like eleven. I'm sure. Um, and I tried to get into Robocop and we I, I couldn't get in. They were like, are you joking? <laughs> so so the, the other one, the other screen was showing a movie called Cry Freedom. And ah. for everyone listening, if you want to get, uh, uh, at least I hope this is right in your opinion as well, a great view of, of that kind of feel of what life was like. And then obviously at the end, when the credits roll, the the victims of that kind of uh, regime, then I think Cry Freedom with the Steve Biko story is absolutely amazing.
1: Absolutely, a fantastic film, and actually Steve Biko um, is one of the most inspirational figures in South Africa. He was murdered in 1977, um, but he was one of the he laid the foundation um, for changing. So he, he he his philosophy was essentially called Black Consciousness, and the idea was that. People, the black community, um, had basically internalized their inferiority and sort of second class um, state. And he said, well, you know, how can we lead a revolution in this country to right this wrong if black people are even believing that they're second class citizens? So he was very important for the country. And and funnily enough, um, his his wife, uh, Nsiki Biko, actually kind of took me under her wing in south africa and uh and his older brother kaya gave me a bit of of a political education i was very fortunate um when i was uh in my early 20s
0: beautiful well speaking of that it's a good transition so the apartheid kind of movement is what first took you to south africa so tell me about how that ended up becoming into um you know realizing there were issues that needed to be solved uh, and some of the work that you started doing
1: yeah, when I when I came into South Africa, I was obviously shocked at the at apartheid because it was, it was very evident, uh, and a very it was quite a painful trip in, in many ways. You know, um, it was so different from where I'd grown up, and um, and you kind of can't help in that situation, but want to do something to support it. And I actually wanted to to stay on and 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 just volunteer, and I, I didn't have any, you know. Um, you know, grand ideas about something major that I could do because, you know, I was 18 years old and um, didn't really have a, a whole lot to offer, but I just wanted to to be a bit of a, you know, to, to plug away and, and volunteer and help if I could. So I um, actually came back briefly to the UK, did a couple of jobs to raise a bit of money and then went, bank, went back out um, to, to actually try and find a way that I could get involved and volunteer. I connected with Nelson Mandela's African National Congress, um, and, and at around about the same time, I went up into Mozambique during the Civil War um, to spend some time there looking at the socio-political situation, and was actually shocked to, to meet street children for the first time, and that was quite an interesting uh, moment in my life, because I, I, to be honest, I didn't even know street kids existed, and um, I was so utterly shocked that it kind of changed the course of my life.
0: So when you say street kids, obviously, we've all got our version of homelessness in each of these different countries. What are the conditions and and the numbers that you were seeing over there?
1: Well, it was during the Civil War in Mozambique and, you know, kids were flocking from all over the country to escape the violence. And so there were hundreds of kids just lining the streets in in just the small area that I was. Um, And I couldn't believe it. I mean, there's literally kids living on the streets. So we're not talking about kids that hang around on street corners and go home in, in in the night literally sleeping if they're lucky with a blanket on the on the pavement um, and I, I couldn't believe it It was actually shocking to see this
0: yeah and then so that's that's an interesting kind of thing i saw as apartheid ended is you know when you just shut down a regime of whatever you know uh, description there's also that knock-on effect then so when when apartheid ended yeah one would hope that everything was good again, and you know everything was distributed fairly and, and the people that were already there weren't you know victimized as well. Um, what were what were some of the things that you saw once that that happened once apartheid actually ended?
1: Well, it was an interesting time because um what I loved was the the excitement and the the joy and the enthusiasm of the people. I mean, being free, I mean I was a peace monitor at the first free and fair elections in South Africa. And it is one of the best days of my life just to see that um, and just to feel that uh, excitement and joy. Um, So absolutely incredible um, to witness. But, you know, what you've also got to look at is the fact that um, it was was an uphill job. I mean, you'd have, you had a system designed to benefit the minority. So take, for example, the social welfare side of things. I mean, this was a system designed for a small amount of people that suddenly bust at the seams. So getting freedom was one thing, you know, transitioning the country into uh, being able to uh, be the best for all its citizens, a whole other story.
0: Right, because I got, I got family that actually fled. They were white South Africans and they were, you know, one of the farmers. And I know there was violence towards the farmers. And again, you, when, when you look at both sides, if that farmland originally belonged to Another group of people, you know, it's, it's a lose lose no matter, no matter, um, you know, which way you look at it. So I, I could see there was that rough transition. So let's kind of get back to when you were out in, in Mozambique now. So you're seeing this homelessness, um, especially amongst children. One, when did you suddenly or not suddenly? When did you decide? Okay. I, I want to change something and, and, and start coming up with ideas on how to make a difference?
1: Well, when I was, um, when I went back from Mozambique into South Africa, I was talking with the, uh, the political activists and the, uh, those who were involved in the transition of South Africa from apartheid to the new South Africa. And I, I'd come back with this, you know, this kind of worry about street children. So I'd seen them in Mozambique and now I started noticing them all over South Africa. So I kind of said to, to some of these folks, you know, what's happening with the street children? And you know, obviously they're dealing with the transition of the entire country. So it's, they were like, what um yeah that's i don't know we, we you know the whole country's changing you know so it wasn't that people didn't care i mean they did but it was like there's massive change and, and i'm talking about this tiny little one well, wasn't that tiny but this group of kids so i i said to some of the, the, the these um political folk i said well you know maybe this is something i could just chip away at um and try and help out with the with the street kids issue and they were like oh, okay whatever you know um so i sort of started looking for places where there were street kids. And I befriended a group of kids on the streets in a place, uh, funnily enough, called East London in South Africa. And, um, I couldn't believe it. I mean, the lives that they were living were so rough. It was so dangerous. And the violence was incredible. And I, and I got to know this group of kids very, very well. And the, it was a real rollercoaster because some really tragic things happened to those kids. And I, I, after sort of six months of befriending this group, I, I started looking for programs where, that were helping street kids, they couldn't find much. And then someone said to me, oh, there's a program in one of the, the townships. Um, so one of the areas where the uh, black community <clears throat> excuse me black community was living. So in South Africa, you'd have a town which meant basically a white community. And then behind it, sort of across the tracks, would be what would be called the township, which was the black community that was essentially serving the white community. That was how the apartheid towns were, were structured. And so um, someone said, well, in the township, there's, a, uh, there's a, a street kids project. And so totally naively, because it was quite a, a violent environment at the time, I walked on foot into this township, um, looking for the, uh, the street kids project, and on the way, you know, I could see a few people thought, oh, my goodness, this guy's nuts. What's he doing? And a couple of people actually came and walked with me. They said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, looking for this place. And, oh, we'll walk with you. And I realized they were doing that to keep me safe. And I actually found this little street kid project there that was about to close down. And that was the beginning of working with street kids for me.
0: Beautiful. So, so it was already uh, a project that they was trying to grow. They just didn't have the support to, to get it off the ground.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, they barely had any staff. I mean, it really was two tin shacks with about 30 kids.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because I've I've noticed um, so many of the successful programs are grassroots in the countries that, that need the help, you know, and it seems like some of the charity work that we do and we throw money at are people from here that go over there and do jobs that the people from that country are perfectly capable of doing rather than p- taking people from over here to lead projects and empower the people of those areas to do those things themselves.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think sometimes you tend, to, um, you tend to notice things. I mean, there's probably loads of things in the UK um, that would be very valid social issues to get involved in, but you don't t- tend to notice them in your home area. And when you go somewhere else and you see things with fresh eyes i think sometimes that just gives you an acute awareness doesn't necessarily give you the understanding to be involved but it does um you know it's you know it it signals it it makes you want to be involved whereas i think sometimes at home you you're kind of just so used to it oh yeah that's just the way it is you know
0: yeah yeah all right well then um before we actually go on to you know the project and, and, and how you started to help um I would love to hear about the, the addiction first, the, the glue specifically. I know there's an epidemic there.
1: Absolutely, yes. Um, the drug of choice, I mean, and, and I say choice um, because this is literally all that they can afford, is, the, is glue. And so the kids as young as five or six will come to the streets to, for an array of different um, push factor reasons. And when they're in the streets, you know, life's really, really tough and it's dangerous, it's violent. Um, and sometimes, to survive, they have to engage in um, you know sexual activity and and to be honest, their life so so awful that they end up um, just blasting themselves with glue and, and because that 's basically the cheapest thing they can
0: find yeah and it 's something that that people would look down on like you know glue sniffers as, as as we called them back when we were little, but then you look at alcohol in all these socially acceptable drugs that grown-ups use in developed countries and it's absolutely no different um and it really just implies that there's that trauma that that darkness in their mind that they're trying to suppress that can be suppressed or, or dealt with with negative things or as we're going to talk about in a minute you can replace it with some in- incredibly positive things instead
1: well that's it i mean you know your starting point for these kids is the life's tough life's really really awful um it's traumatic. So, you know, it's not just traumatic being in the streets. So something that's happened to them before to push them into the streets is traumatic. And so every day they're in the streets, these layers of trauma are just uh, building up. And so what they'll do is they literally just use the drug to to just take this pain away. And, um, and what we've tried to do, what we've recognised is that, um, you know, sometimes, it, you know, you have to find a way of breaking through this. Because in a sense, I mean, if you look at it, why why would you not do that? You know, if life was so painful and so awful, why would you not, you know, blast yourself away in a sense? Um, But we found that the surfing, particularly, I know we're going to come on to this, is in a strange way, um, almost like a a healthy drug to replace the the negative drug. It sounds funny to say, but it really seems to work like that. But, But essentially what it does it opens the door for the real work, which is looking at this trauma.
0: Absolutely. I had a, a, a gentleman on, Ishmael Bey. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He wrote a book. Uh, I think it was The Long Way Gone. And he was a boy soldier in Sierra Leone. His parents were murdered. He was forced into that. He was also forced into drugs. Um, and you'd think that was it. That person is is done. Well, they, he was ultimately rescued by a Red Cross worker. Um, and is now working for the uh, UN as an advocate to get other boy soldiers or child soldiers, you know, released from whatever tribal, you know, war is going on. So wow. it's, it's amazing when these mentors come in, you can take such broken children and actually save them.
1: Yeah, that's an incredible story. I'll definitely uh, try and find out more about him.
0: Yeah, I'll send you his information. Um Okay, so, so there you are, you're at this, this um, township hut, so I'd love to hear you know, the, the next year or two after that, how that grew.
1: Yeah, well, you know, when I got to this, uh, to this kind of street kids project, in a sense, there was a, a woman there called Auntie Maggie. Uh, she was a black woman uh, from the township, who was basically, couldn't read or write, just had so much love for these kids, and there were all these kids that had lost parents and had either been found literally on the rubbish dump uh, or on the streets. I mean, it was right next to a huge uh, rubbish dump, refuse site, where kids, adults were living in the rubbish. I mean, it was extraordinary. And, um, and she was just the most amazing person. I actually couldn't believe that with next to no resources, Um, She was there. She was giving these kids love, attention, you know, in abject poverty. So, you know, when you meet someone like that and you see the struggle and you realize that, wow, even though I actually don't have much to offer uh, being an 18 year old with (laughs) no skills at that time, I might be able to, um, you know, ask around and even get a bit of money towards helping them for the needs they have. I realized actually I could make a difference here. Um, So, you know, under you know, partnering with, with Auntie Maggie and really sort of, uh, being led by her. I, I got involved with, with working with these kids and, and funny enough, they had such a huge impact on me. I'm still in contact with a lot of them today. I mean, they're in their, um, their twenties and thirties now. Um, but they, they were the most incredible group of kids. And, um, yeah, I, I was with them for about six or seven years, um, in, in the early nineties.
0: Right now, was that originally the Durban Street Team? No, that was actually before that. Oh, okay. Um, The Durban Street Team was
1: 1998. This was in uh, 1992 um, through
0: to uh, about 97. Okay, so um, what what was that program? How did you start helping the kids with that program specifically?
1: Um, my my father was running a, a charity actually in the UK that supported projects in different parts of the world. Um, not not this project at that stage. And I I called him and I said, hey, look, you know, this is a really serious situation here. And um, you know, could you pitch it to the board to potentially um, get involved? It's not that they had huge amounts of you know funds, but just could we use the UK organisation as a way as a platform to try and raise some funds for this project because they're going to close down if not. And then you've got 30 kids on the streets. Um, and so we, we got a little support mechanism from the UK towards this program. And and you couldn't really get funds um, in South Africa at the time, because there was so much need. Remember, the timing of this is two years before the, um, the 1994, which was the, the end of apartheid in the new South Africa. So, you know, every aspect of the of South Africa needed finance, needed help. So for something like this, it was actually a little easier to look outside the country for, for financial support and also to gather a team of local South Africans who could actually um, assist Auntie Maggie as well and help her run the program.
0: Right, so so this was at this point providing housing and education? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it was basically um,
1: a, uh, I mean, you could call it an orphanage if you want, but it was, uh, yeah, it was a, a live-in centre but again, you know, it literally was two, uh, two big shacks. And uh, over time, uh, over about six or seven years, we built this program to be an incredible children's village actually. And uh, Auntie Maggie is still alive. Um, and I, I go to visit her uh, once a year because um, she's in a different part of South Africa. And I go and spend time with her every July on the way to a big surfing contest that I go to down in Jeffreys Bay. And um, she's still incredible. Uh, she- She's getting getting old now, Uh, but the lives that she has, uh, you know,
0: that she's changed, you know, she's the most incredible person. She sounds like it. She really does. Now, um, in those six years, what were some of the things that you observed began healing some of these little uh, boys and girls that came into the orphanage?
1: I mean, in those days, there was no social welfare system for these kids. So there weren't social workers that could deal with these kids. Um, The only social workers at the time uh, came from, uh, for the white community. And, you know, although there's some very nice social workers then, they just didn't have any knowledge of what life was like for black people in South Africa at the time. So it was a really difficult time to get children professional help. And so what we tried to do in that sort of, Chaos and anarchy, um, we tried to put into place a program where the kids were getting love and care and attention and counseling. And kids were coming in from seriously um, abusive situations, uh, both physically and sexually. And the place um, was, uh, was, was really a place of healing for them. Um, but it, we, we were basically just trying to pull something together without any infrastructural um, support, which was, was really tricky.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure I've seen this, you know, in many, many of the the people I've had on that have experienced trauma in you know a host of avenues. And it seems like that tribal element, that sense of being part of something, and I'm sure it was the same of being part of the orphanage for the kids is so healing. And then the ability to then assist, help give back is another huge healing element of that.
1: Absolutely. They were a big family and, uh, Funnily enough, um, I've got, uh, one of the kids from the program who's in his thirties now is one of my, uh, child and youth care workers. In fact, our head lifeguard that surfers, not street children as well.
0: Oh, fantastic. All right. Well then you mentioned about, um, the, the street team. So how did you transition from, um, working with the orphanage to the Durban street team?
1: Yeah, the, the area of East London is quite a small, it's a small town in, in South Africa and, um, We'd actually done quite well in the mid-90s of reducing the number of kids on the streets there, and there was uh, organisations that were up and running. So I wanted to... I'd heard that Durban had a, was, was one of the worst affected areas in terms of numbers of kids on the streets. And the reason for that was because the climate was so much better than everywhere else in the country. So kids would come from Johannesburg and Cape Town and the Eastern Cape, and they'd come up to uh, to Durban. And you could, Durban, you really can I mean, take away the dangers, but you really could live on the streets, it's warm, you know, um, all year round. And so th- there was just so many kids on the streets in Durban that we, um, I really felt that I want, that's where I should be working because that's the, the heart of the, the problem in South Africa.
0: Right. And that's right. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, I saw on one of the, the videos that you guys did on, on YouTube, that the, the number they had on that was about 6,000 kids on the streets in Durban alone.
1: Yeah, that's a very old statistic. So that's going back you know, almost 20 years and, and actually um, is not entirely accurate. Um, it was um, that, that was using a very, very broad um, description of street children. But nonetheless, um, there were hundreds and hundreds of kids on the streets, which is a large number. You know, it was alarming in, in those days. And originally, it was political violence violence that was leading kids to the streets, you know, obviously the backdrop of poverty. One thing you have to remember is that most poor children live at home. You know, it takes a lot for someone to actually go to the streets. It takes something to have happened, a push factor. Um, and, you know, kids end up in the streets because of, of that. So at the time it was political violence. Um, and then, of course, you think about the, the era that we're talking about here, the next wave of kids that came onto the streets. Was related to the HIV/AIDS crisis.
0: No, oh, I didn't even think about that. That
1: hit sort of in the in the nineties, sort of kind of the beginning of the new South Africa, really. And you know, for fifteen years or so, that was the. I mean, we were working in the in the epicenter of HIV/AIDS. So you know, people were dying, kids were being left hopeless and ended up on the streets, and you know, it was an, you know. A horrific time, actually. Um, you know, it was before, you know, you, in those days you, you didn't know much about HIV. Um, today, of course, you can keep people alive generally, um, but in those days not. So there was a whole wave of kids coming to the streets who were AIDS orphans and many uh, contracting AIDS in the streets because of the abusive uh, lifestyle. So in the in the late 90s and early 2000s, we lost a lot of kids, um, to HIV-related diseases.
0: Right now, I remember hearing something, and please forgive me if I misquote in this person, but whoever was there was the, the philosophy that um, AIDS could be cured by certain unprotected sex. Was, was that something that that was actually a thing in South Africa when you were observing this crisis?
1: Um, but there was an underlying um, sort of belief in probably a very, very slim sector of, of society, but. Um, there was at one stage um, a belief that 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 you could cure HIV-related illnesses with that. Um, that was not the main. You know, most people in South Africa didn't believe that, but there were obviously a few um, horrific um, cases of rape and uh, you know that, that stemmed from that. Yeah.
0: So you have obviously this this horrendous homelessness from poverty from the the AIDS crisis. Um, how did that then factor into the creation of the Durban Street Team?
1: Well, when I um, moved up to Durban, um, I got together with uh, local street children activists up there, and we set up something called the Durban Street Team. And the idea was um, that we, we set up an outreach team that would literally, we had one vehicle, about six of us, that would literally drive around the streets all day, identifying kids on the streets, building a relationship of trust with them, and looking at what their needs were, and seeing if we could, um, you know, engage and get involved. Uh, we had a little bit of budget. Um, we had a, we, you know, we were an organisation then, um, and so we didn't have any facility, but we were just it was on the street help, and we got to know, you know, literally all of the kids on the streets uh, in Durban, and you know, it was about bringing healthcare to them. It was about bringing uh, counselling, you know, access to services. Um, and ultimately looking for ways out of the streets for them
0: brilliant now i know that you mentioned in in one of the the videos as well about the integration excuse me the introduction of sports as one of the the healing mechanisms so i know you know surfing was one of them we're talking about in a minute but overall sports what 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 did you start seeing when these kids were brought into some sort of social sporting setting
1: well, sports has always been a, a fantastic uh, way to engage with the kids. Because I always say to people, you know, imagine walking around the streets in, in the outreach team and saying to the kids, hey, how are you doing? Would you like some counselling? <laughs> the kids will look at you like you're mad. Um, but if you uh, – sports is not only – engaging is not only therapeutic in itself and, and good fun uh, and engaging. It opens the door for – to you know more professional work and so before we were doing surfing with the kids we we had um you know soccer programs we also use art and drama and you know non-sports but other engaging programs um but yeah we found that with the soccer program we actually had a, a world cup for street children that we hosted in 2010 just before the fifa world cup uh which was really fun in durban but um yeah, we, we, the, the sports have always been an important part of, of the work that we do.
0: Brilliant. Did the English team make it to the finals and then blow it in penalties? <laughs> 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 um So well, I, 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 there was a moment in one of the films that really struck me, and we're going to talk about surfing. I keep saying that. But um, the I, I can't remember if it was Nintendo or not, and I want to talk about him in a moment as well. But one of the boys came... Off the beach you would just been surfing and then and then the 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 narration was basically saying, now they had that fulfillment they'd surfed, they were mentally tired, they were physically tired. that was then an, an a, the perfect time to then start a conversation that ultimately is counseling. And I thought that was a great way of looking at it because you're right. You go up to most firefighters, police officers, members of the military and just be like, Hey, you want to talk? <laughs> yeah, leave me alone, weirdo. But if you get that trust, that buy-in, and I think that, you know, exercise is such a great way of breaking down some of those walls. What a beautiful place to start counseling with a bunch of people who've just exerted themselves and are now sitting on the beach, listening to the waves roll as they start the conversation.
1: Absolutely. And our social working, we always say that, you know, some of the best social working we've ever done is literally um, with our social workers sitting on the beach with kids in their wetsuits who have, you know, just had a few rides and they've come in, they're pausing for a second. And, you know, uh, and that's that's connection time. You know, it's incredible. And it's in the, the world that the kids are absolutely loving at that moment. So, you know, the guard is down and it just opens the door.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love that. All right. So then, from the street team, uh, how was Surfers Not Street Children born?
1: Well, in with the the, um, the street team lasted for for quite some time. I mean, uh, we slowly developed it into a uh, a home for street children, um, and uh, it became a, a quite a, a major project. Um, and uh, you know, at the time, about thirty staff and. Um, There were a lot of kids on the streets and and there was really big issues that um, kids were facing. Like there was um, police roundups where they would round up the kids and literally drive them out of the city and dump them, you know, because they didn't want kids on the streets when there were international conferences in the area. And so we were campaigning against this and, you know, trying to change the way that society perceived and treated street children. Um, But uh, over time, um, we realized that actually. The surfing was was really becoming a central part of the work that we do, and the kids really just wanted to surf. They were so into it. So in about twenty twelve, um, we divided the organisation into two, um, and uh, Surfers Not Street Children uh, was one was one part of it, focusing on the um, the fusion of surfing with uh, mentorship and care, and that really sort of developed to be the main aspect of the work, um, and it was. It's incredible because people will say well you know how come why why are you giving these kids surfing isn't that just like you know imposing what you like on the kids the irony was that was the opposite it was the kids that were were desperate to surf we we offered them every possibility we could think of they wanted to surf and they had chosen to surf they thought that surfing was cool and you know, obviously it wasn't sort of no, normal for them in terms of uh the fact that they hadn't had access to surfing because think back to apartheid south africa the beaches were segregated, black people weren't allowed on the beaches that white people were, so you couldn't surf uh, you know a family couldn't have grown up surfing in South Africa because it was literally illegal to be on those beaches so the kids on the streets you know found the sort of um, sort of adrenaline side of surfing just. They just loved it. They just wanted to surf. They thought it was cool. They wanted to work on their surfing. It was great for us because we realized that the more they got into, you know, they got stoked about surfing, um, the, more, the less they wanted to engage in, in behaviors that were really hard for us to break through, like, like drug taking. Um, so it was, it was incredible to see how the therapeutic side of surfing and the allure of surfing and what we call stoke as surfers was actually the greatest tool that we had.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that makes perfect sense about the the beaches, because one of my close friends um, was a a lifeguard. I believe it was in the Jefferies Bay area, somewhere around there. And, uh, you know, he was always making rescues because, you know, a lot of the the black South Africans would would get in trouble. But then historically, when you look, they weren't allowed anywhere near the water for so long. Um, Then that is probably the underlying cause of of why that issue was happening.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just literally didn't have access, you know. And also, you know, the South African coastline, I and mean, this is why it's so good for surfing, it's really rough. Um, it's really dangerous, and if you can't swim. So the, the black community in South Africa had grown up with very wise teachings within the culture as to why you don't go in the water, um, because the, the rip currents are so incredibly strong. But of course, if you have access to the knowledge of understanding the ocean, then those things can be um, overcome. And, uh, and that's what we've seen uh, you know, since the, new, the dawn of the new South Africa. There's, there's a lot of um, black people in South Africa who, have, um, who absolutely love the ocean and for whom the ocean has become part of their everyday life.
0: Amazing. Now, the, the two things kind of struck me when we were talking. One, one of the questions that I'll ask you at the end is, you know, what do you do to decompress? And so many people say I go into nature and actually the ocean is one of my favorite places to go as well. But then the, so you've got that element already in there. The other thing is once you've paid for a board, that's it. They're good to go. If we do jujitsu or, you know, polo or, you know, all these other sports, there's there's a cost. And you also kind of need another person. It's hard to do jujitsu on your own, but with with the board and nature, I mean, that is so freeing to that child because once they have that one piece of equipment, they can, as long as the board doesn't break, they can literally surf for the rest of their life.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and, and that's part of the program that we run is, you know, we, the, the kids can come to the program literally as they are. We'll provide wetsuits, boards. Um, we've got lifeguards and the coaches, and obviously we'll come to that. But, um, but yeah, if you, can, if you can give the kids access, I mean, they're going to get as stoked as any other kid
0: yeah all right well then i i think a great person to kind of tell the story of of what you know the impact that you guys are having is uh nintendo Masibi. so i'd love to hear about firstly i think it's very powerful how he ended up homeless and then his journey through your program
1: nintendo's an incredible guy um he uh he now works in a surf shop and he's also a a sponsored free surfer. so he He's an incredibly uh, good surfer, very very high level, um, and he's basically um, sponsored to to basically sort of produce edits and photos and things like that. Um, so he's he's really doing great, but his his life was really difficult. And if you go back um, to when he was about nine years old, um, he lost his parents um, to uh, HIV-related disease, and they he ended up on the streets, and he would bounce between street families um and uh you know he'd be one day living with one family the next with another and and i met him um back back in the days of durban street team and we actually had a a live-in shelter by then and uh it took quite a while he was so um streetwise um that um it took a while for him to see that it would be better to come into the program because obviously when kids are you know on the streets um, you know, and when drugs are involved, when they're sniffing glue, and uh, it's sometimes quite hard to take them away from that. You know, um, and say, hey, you know, it'll be better here. And bear in mind that they've had a lot of bad experiences with adults as well. So, uh, so for a couple of years, he was kind of one foot in the program, one foot out. And one day, he got—he was so high on glue that he got hit by a car, and he got hit so hard, but unbelievably. He he wasn't very injured. Uh, he could have been killed. I mean, it was just crazy. And after that, um, he started coming into the program a bit more. And when we started surfing, he really got into it. And from a very early, um, from very early in that program, uh, we we could see that he had absolute natural talent. And the more he got into surfing, the more he realized that if you want to become a good surfer. He couldn't be sniffing glue because it just doesn't do anything to enhance your surfing. In fact, it, it just makes you less capable. So he wanted to be a, a great surfer and started getting into the surf scene, started being recognized for being a good surfer. And, you know, one of the things that the program's been really successful over at Nintendo was very much part of the first wave of this was that it changed the identity of the kids. So the kids as street kids were, were, were told by people's actions and words that you are the rubbish of society. Um, you're the architects of your own misery. You know, you are there because that's your destiny. In a sense, that was, you know, when people, every time someone stepped over them, you know, or spat at them or swore at them or, or sexually abused them, kind of the, the general message that was being given is that you are lesser people. But when they, um, when they started surfing and became a group of surfers, suddenly they realized that, um, they, they felt this new sensation, which was dignity. People looked up to them, people were impressed by them. You know, people would, because there, there weren't any really many black surfers in those days. So, you know, the African community would literally see these kids about to jump off the pier and they'd come running over. They were like, couldn't believe that black people were doing this. And, um, and they were seen as like, they were almost like gladiators, you know, riding these waves in the community. This was so new for the community. And um, it really changed the identity that these kids had. And I really got it um, on one day, this is actually how we got our name, when uh, we'd just been given a, a, a wetsuit donation by a, by a, a, a wetsuit company. And um, it was like 35 degrees. So like, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but hot, really hot Durban day. And, um, and you know, humid, super humid, like Florida humid. And the surf was cooking, and I had my board shorts on and my board, and I was like, "Hey, let's go! We're going, we're going surfing!" And you know, the kids all came down. And they were all wearing their wetsuits, and I was like, "Whoa, you guys, you're crazy! It's like you know, 35 degrees centigrade," and they're like saying, "I said, why are you wearing your wetsuits?" And they said, "No, we 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 love our wetsuits. Yeah, but why? It's, it, aren't you you know, overheating?" And like, ah, but there's a "Tom, you know, when we when we wear these wetsuits, we're surfers, not street children." And it was like, ah, oh, man, it's about identity. They see themselves as, as sort of full. They, they feel re, they're reimagined as full human beings in a sense. And such a small thing, in my mind,
0: had given them such an identity change. Amazing. Now we we talk about um, you know trauma a lot and and you know uh, PTSD and those things. But the important thing to focus on is obviously the growth once you get through that trauma. Did you witness? obviously you know the the healing but did you witness them becoming more resilient stronger young men when they came out the other end
1: um sorry after they'd been in the program yeah yeah
0: yeah. when when they'd been through this process obviously yeah initially they were still very very broken mentally when when that healing was kind of done and and they were deep deep in the program now did you notice a a resilience mentally as well
1: absolutely um Look, we're under no illusions that the healing processes um, are ongoing throughout many of the kids' lives. Um, That's the reality. If you miss out on some of the key parts of childhood, um, the foundational development, um, the reality is that that has consequences. If you go through extremely traumatic um, sexual or physical abuse um, as a child, um, there are long-term consequences. But yes, um, as they went through the program, as they got counselling, um, as they got, as they became happy, and as they had a sense of family and community within the the group um, of surfers and, and the the staff in the program, they, they they certainly. I mean, you know, people have you know often looked at these kids and said, "Wow, they've been through so much, and yet they're they're so happy, they're so stoked, you know, always got a smile on their face." The reality is, they do still carry the pain, um, and many of them, obviously we've been doing this for a long time and we've seen uh, kids go through right into their twenties and thirties. And many of them do, you know, carry on seeing people and we're, we're trying to, you know, the message we, we have with the kids is, is not that, you know, um, you know, come surfing and everything will be all right, but you know, the journeys, the journey of, uh, of healing is okay. It'll be ongoing perhaps, but it's, it's great and, and worth being on. But Surfing in and of itself is actually extremely therapeutic. Being out in nature, there's something about surfing that just is so good for the soul. And it's been a, surfing isn't the model we use, but surfing fits the model extremely well.
0: And, and some of the, the graduates that come through, do they end up becoming mentors within the program?
1: Absolutely. We've got many of the kids who've uh, been through the program who've uh, stayed involved. Um, someone like Nintendo. You know, going back to his story, um, he came through the program and uh, became this incredible surfer who went on and surfed for South Africa twice in a row. He went to the world championships once in Ecuador and once in California. This ex-street kid who'd been a, a glue sniffing street kid at nine years old was now representing the country, which was absolutely incredible and changing people's perceptions. I mean, people often looked at the kids on the streets as if they were you know, the the, the no-hopers and, and the naughty kids that didn't want discipline. And suddenly, one of these kids that had been a write-off was now representing the the actual country. It was absolutely incredible. Um, so, you know, Nintendo's become a role model to other kids. Um, kids look up to him and they think, wow, he was able to do it, so, so perhaps I can. And he gives back as well. He comes in, he spends time with the kids, you know, he gets involved. He works in this surf shop called the Surf HQ, in Durban, it's one of the main surf shops. Really cool people, um, and you know they have a, a donation area where people can bring old boards and wetsuits in, and then Tando then brings them down to the kids in our program. Uh, so you know he plays his part as well. He's been really inspirational, and many other of the kids, um, both girls and boys who've been through the program, have uh, are really uh, sowing into the lives of the kids that are present day um You know beneficiaries of the program.
0: Yeah, and and that's a really important point, and it's something I've talked about many times on this podcast too. Is I I always use the same analogy, so people have listened to this podcast a lot. I apologize, but take a kindergarten. You take take a bunch of kids that are two or three years old from wherever they are. Let's say two years old, and they're running around laughing with each other. Let's say there's a ball thrown in; they're all chasing the ball and throwing it. that's who human beings are and then what happens to us those formative years then sets us on a path you know so that so the kids are living on the street this from some people there's that eye rolling they did it to themselves it's their own fault mentality instead of what happened to that person to get them there and and what happened you know with uh nintendo is you took that same toddler you took them out of that horrible journey they were on. You put him back on the on a good path, and look what happens. He became a great young man. And even we see this with, with older people on the streets here. You know, was that a veteran that came back and, and fell apart? Was it someone who was abused as a child and just couldn't cope with adult life, you know? And I think that for those of us that are blessed, and I, cons- I consider myself one of these, it really didn't have much trauma in my life it's up to us to look around and reach out to the people that are hurting instead of stepping over them. And it's a, metaphorically and physically what happens all over the world to reach our hand out and, and say, you know, how can we get you out of this dark place and onto the tracks?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, it's an incredible r- responsibility. And One of the interesting things that I found working with the kids on the streets, you think that the streets being sort of such a... a, a a horrible place in a sense because there's, there's nothing nice about living on the streets um, but one of the things that I've been amazed at is finding that the kids on the streets um, often have a deep compassion for each other they look after each other so in with everyone still going through all the trauma that they are and the abuse on the streets they're still the kids are still looking out for each other and I've seen um, incredible acts of kindness from one street child to another which I've walked away just Thinking, wow, I just don't know why, but I just did not expect that.
0: Yeah. Uh, there's there's a horseman I'm, I'm in the process of interviewing. We've done part of the interview and we've got to finish it off. His name's Buck Brannaman, And he's he's basically the Horse Whisperer movie. It was about him, pretty much. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, he, in, our, in what we've done so far, he had a very, very abusive childhood physically. His father was, was a drunk and, and would beat him. Um, and... But when to the point where we got in our conversation, he's like, I never allowed the kindness that was in me to be compromised despite the cruelty that was around me. And that's an interesting thing because some people obviously do get turned and find themselves becoming, you know, abusers themselves, but but there's so much kindness within most of these people. If you show kindness to them, you can pull it back out again.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've seen that, you know, with the kids on the street and, you know, I see that, you know, on a daily basis with some of the kids who've come through the program who work for the organization now, for example, our water safety team, which is three qualified lifeguards, all three of them are former street children. And they do their job really well, but um, they they make sure there's, you know, safety first. But they also have a huge compassion and the kids look up to them because they've been in the position that many of the kids we're working with are now.
0: Fantastic. All right, well, then this is a great segue to Girls Surf Too. So um, how did that become, you know, another initiative in itself?
1: Girl, we've always worked with girls, but um, a while back we realized that um, there was a portion, there was a, a group of girls that we really weren't getting access to and not able to help. And, and we, uh, so we're working with girls on the street, but there's also girls that are living in these hostels, these so-called shelters. That a gang run, um, you know, they're, they're in a sort of block of flats. But it's, the whole thing is sort of uh, just a big hostel, and it's uh, you know terrible, terrible places. Everything you can imagine going on in these uh, in these areas, and we just couldn't get into these places, and so we couldn't work with the girls in there and, and the kids. And um, we had to go in on one occasion, myself and, and a female social worker. We actually went in with bodyguards. So ex street kids that have come through our program accompanied us because this is so dangerous. But something very interesting happened when we were inside the one hostel. The, the gang, which is a prison gang called the 26s, uh, controlled this hostel. And when we went in there, the, the gang leaders came out to see what were we doing. Um, and uh, they came up to me. And the minute I saw them, I recognized every single one of them. They were kids that we'd worked with on the streets. So sadly, they were the kids that we hadn't been able to get off the streets. But amazingly, they remembered... You know all the stuff we'd done to try and help them out, and they came over and just threw their arms around us, and you know it was like a actually quite a beautiful reunion. And they said, "What are you? You know, what are you doing here?" And they said, "Well, you know, here's the issue. We we are worried about the girls inside our, here, and we want to try and you know provide some support, get them out of here." And they were say, "Yeah, fantastic. You know, if, if we don't want them to go through what we went through, and so you know, amazingly these gang." leaders showed this incredible compassion and said, yeah, man, these girls are, are struggling in here. If you can help them, please do. And so they gave us access and they said, oh, by the way, we control all of the shelters around here so you can go into whichever ones you want. So we decided to set up this program specifically catering to the need of the girl child. And um, So it's for, for girls living on the streets and for girls living in these awful hostels where we're basically, Empowering them to transform their lives to get out of the hostels. So, using the model of surfing fused with mentorship and psychosocial care to transform the lives of these girls, some as young as six, seven years old.
0: That is amazing because you know anyone else had walked up, it would have probably ended in a threat or even violence. But the fact that you've shown kindness, compassion, still sat with them, even though they were a prison gang, to the point where now you were unable to, or you were able to access all these young women that you know, would have been completely shut off to you before.
1: It really was one of the more extraordinary moments uh, that I can remember in this work.
0: Amazing. All right. Well, then, while we're on the subject of all this, so I'd love to talk about how people listening can, can help in some way.
1: Yeah, we've got a campaign at the moment, actually. It's just about to go. It's live. It's just about to go public. It's called Girls Surf 2 campaign. And basically, we started Girls Surf 2 um, at the beginning of uh, this year. And it's been absolutely incredible. We've got 45 girls at the moment who are, um, who are in the program. We've got a, we run from our drop-in center on the beach and we've also got a, a girls rescue center. And it costs us about $30,000 a year to, to run this program. And um, what we're trying to do with the Girls Surf 2 campaign, which is the GoFundMe uh, campaign, is that we want to, uh, to guarantee this program for the next two years it's very difficult to to try and get the funding for a program you haven't started. So we knew that we had to take a, a step of faith and actually start the program and then show people, Hey, this is what we're doing. Who wants to buy in? You know? And so we've just got to that stage now where we've run this thing for nine months. You know, we've learned about it. We know we can do it. We know it's changing the girls lives. Um, it's been an amazing, uh, you know, learning curve for us as well but we know we can deliver on this. So what we want to do now is uh, with this GoFundMe campaign is to raise the money for this program so that we can guarantee this for the next two years.
0: Brilliant. Well, I will put the links to that on the show notes for this, this episode. So jamesgearing.com and then Tom Hewitt episode. Uh, you can click on that and then you'll be able to get right to the links to, to help. And then I'll also, of course, share the, uh, the links on social media as well.
1: Oh, wonderful. Thanks ever so much.
0: Brilliant. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions. Um, The first one that I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed or someone complete, excuse me, some subject completely different.
1: Yeah. I think if going back to when I started the organization uh, and by the way, let me just say that this isn't by no means a one person, uh, you know, uh, organization. I have an incredible team of colleagues that I work with, so all local South Africans. They're absolutely fantastic crew. Um, but when, when, when I started the organization, um, there was a book by a, uh, a Brazilian educationalist called Paulo Freire, called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And that was a really seminal book for us because it, re- it really helped me understand the idea of, um, you know, often oppressed people, are, if you're told every single day of your life that you're, you're not as good as the next person you tend to internalize this it's just human nature you do you somehow realize you, you somehow feel that maybe this is your your lot in life this is your this is who you're supposed to be even to the extent of maybe it's it's your own fault and paulo freire was saying you know he was talking about a process of conscientization whereby are, are given the tools with which to see themselves to revision themselves as full human beings so to overcome this uh, what's been placed upon them as being inferior and second class and, and seeing themselves in their, as a full human. And so Pedagogy of the Oppressed, uh, it's a translated book from, I'm going to say Portuguese because I think he's, he's Brazilian, uh, was, was really amazing. And then Steve Biko, also influenced by Paulo Freire, um, his book, I Write What I Like, um, was very interesting because it was a similar thing in the context of apartheid um, South Africa.
0: Brilliant! I haven't heard of either of those two, so I'm going to add those to the list. Thank you so much. Um, next question: Is there a movie that you love, or film, as we say in England?
1: <laughs> Funnily enough, the, the Cry Freedom was one of my favourite films. The one that you, uh, the one that you um, mentioned. I mean, man, I watched that so many times. And right at the time when I went out to South Africa, um, that was a really important movie uh, in my life. You know, it it inspired me. Um, and Actually, uh, the family of Donald Woods, who was the journalist, it, she came round um, to visit that project that I spoke about earlier, my first project in the Eastern Cape in East London in South Africa.
0: What was powerful to me is I was, like I said, 13 when I watched Cry Freedom. And then before that, I remember as, as a young, young boy being fascinated with the um, Stanley and Livingston story and how that was ultimately the beginning of abolition of slavery by the British. and And... Now, you know, as, as a 45-year-old man, I look back at when I was little and racism just made no sense whatsoever. Slavery certainly made no sense to me. And it just, it, it blows me away that whether it's slavery, whether it's, you know, um, genocide, how some people can be conditioned to think that's right when I believe in our depths of our soul that we know that all these negative practices are completely inherently wrong.
1: It was very interesting because we, um, we're, we're, you know, historically, obviously, there haven't been many black surfers. Now with, with Surfers Not Street Children, there really are. It's open and there are a lot of black surfers. But if you look at the youngsters in our program, the young black kids, and you look at the, the young white surfers in the area, they all get on well. I mean, they all they don't really um, notice uh, color. They, they hang out. They're just kids together. And it's so interesting that in the new South Africa, just, just, this, just looking at the way the kids hang out together at school, it's so different to how it was under apartheid with their parents or the parents, you know, or grandparents.
0: That is fantastic. I mean, we talk about this in the fire service, you know, there's, there's certain individuals that are sexist, that are racist, that are homophobic, whatever it is. And when you put a firefighter next to another one, when they're wearing their gear, you can't tell; it's irrelevant. You put a surfer in, you know, a, in a wetsuit and put them out on a wave. You can't tell the black one from the white one when they're wet and they're, you know, on the board. And it is; it's, it's crazy the way we start to pigeonhole people um, to, to really to divide them instead of seeing the commonalities that we all have. Absolutely. Right. Well, you mentioned Cry Freedom. What about documentaries? Are there any of those that you've seen that you love? Um, <laughs> I
1: can't. Uh, yes i'm sure many 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 um i particularly remember earlier i spoke about the uh the project that was right next to a rubbish dump i do take quite an interest in in uh often i see documentaries about communities living on rubbish dumps and that that really resonates for me because i that was uh was a really important moment witnessing people living in in such depths of poverty, it was so tragic that that stayed with me. And I, I do take an interest in, in documentaries, documenting communities where they, they are having to etch out an existence from, from refuse, you know.
0: Yeah. And that, and that shouldn't be a thing on planet Earth, period, as affluent as most of us are.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: All right. Well, then the next question I always like to ask, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world and everyone else that listens?
1: Good question. Um, I'll have to give it some thought because, again, just off the top of my head, that's quite a hard one um, to come up with. But um, I, I, you know, had interactions with some incredible people over the years, so I could probably think of more than a few, actually. Yeah.
0: Beautiful. All right. Yeah, we'll do that after this then. Um, All right. So then, the last question before we just reiterate where everyone can find you and where they can donate. what do you do to decompress if there's anything aside from surfing?
1: Yeah, I, um, I obviously surfing, yeah. Um, and I also do stand-up paddleboarding. I find that uh, I compete in stand-up paddleboarding, but surfing the paddleboards. So I try and sort of keep up with the 20-year-olds. Uh, and you know, every now and again, I win a contest. So it kind of keeps, um, keeps me stoked. But um, I, ha- I have uh, three boys uh, so and, and the wife and so family time is really important to me. Um my eldest son is fourteen, he's really into skateboarding and uh I try and connect with him as much as possible. The twelve year old is a contest surfer, um, so he's sort of just lives surfing. Um and I've got a six year old as well. Um and uh you know, family time is 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 golden and I do travel quite a bit for my work, so you know I really cherish the times uh, that I'm with them. And, and my, my kids have kind of grown up around all the street kids as well. So it'll be really interesting to see what effect that has on their lives because they're very compassionate because they've had some, some actually quite um, hard experiences like kids that they were close to, you know, dying on the streets of drug overdoses or violence. You know, that's, that's really tough stuff for kids to, you know, uh, for your own kids to have to go th- through as well. Um, just as it is for the other kids living on the streets to have to see those things. Um, so yeah, definitely family time. And and also, I'm a sucker for watching. Uh, you know, uh, binge watching a season of of, of something. You know, um, you know to really sort of zone out. I'll just put you know uh, a, a TV show on and just binge watch. I don't watch TV other than that. But but you know, a good series. Man, I could sit up all night watching that. <laughs>
0: Brilliant. Well, just what you were saying about the kids, I think that's very important as well. They they watch us as far as how we eat, they watch us as far as our exercise habits, but they also watch us as far as our compassion and kindness. And my little boy, bless him, he's done, you know, charity workout fundraisers and um we just walked the other day for like a suicide awareness thing. Um he oh, wow. he, he knows about this project. He actually did he spoke on one of the episodes of my podcast about his, you know, mental health challenges. Um and I think it's so important because now that generation is normal for them to exercise, to eat well, to to be, be vulnerable, you know, and hopefully we can change the world. This next generation, you know, it will be the first wave.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Brilliant. Okay, well, I want to say firstly, thank you so much, but let's make sure that we we reiterate where everyone can find you guys. So firstly, Instagram, what's the handle you have there?
1: Yeah, Instagram is our name, Surfers Not Street Children. Um, You probably, uh, once you get to the surfers and then N, it probably pops up. Um, But uh, yeah, we're we're, we're always, uh, that's probably the best place to keep up with us on a day to day basis. Um, Facebook is also Surfers Not Street Children. And uh, our website is uh, surfnotstreets.org.
0: Brilliant. And again, I'll put all those on the, uh, the show notes on, on the website. Um, so, And then as far as the link to donate, where's the best place to find that?
1: Uh, the link to donate is uh, – is, I'm going to send the, the, that link to you. Um, so, and then that will be all over our Instagram and Facebook. And uh, uh, you can donate on our uh, website. It's very easy and very safe. Um, but the specific one for the Girls Surf to campaign will be all over our social media. And hopefully some of our supporters uh, are going to sort of pump that out as well, like uh, Kelly Slater, for example, and and a number of others. So, you know, hopefully in the surfing world, there'll be a lot of people pushing that as well. We're excited about that.
0: Yeah. Well, I know there's a lot of firefighters at surf. my old department in California, having that three quarters of the department surf so no way, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah so hopefully we can get the the first responders of the world to to make this happen just on their own so okay well beautiful oh, fantastic well thank you well thank i just want to say thank you so much um you know i i love what you're doing i love connecting with people like you that have taken up you know just just picked up one area that needs to be helped especially to do it in a, in a completely different country and uh you know i i just appreciate you taking the time to talk to us
1: well thank you very much for the opportunity and i I really do appreciate your uh encouragement as well thanks for that